Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts, and we're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. An important note, the opinions given by Jim, me, or any of our guests are our own and not those of Refinitiv or our parent company, the London Stock Exchange Group, also known as LSEG. So it's been a minute since Jim and I have done one of these, but hopefully you've caught us on one of our webinars or other media appearances. Today we are talking about unintended consequences, or better said, collateral damage. You know, the damage that happens that you may not see, or that yet to come to the surface when you took a specific action. This, of course, happens in war, but also in other parts of life, and for purposes here in the energy industry. So, Jim, what's on your mind? The book was supposed to be called A Modern Prometheus. However, Mary Shelley's philandering poet husband, Percy Shelley, was working on a poem called Prometheus Unbound. To not usurp his fame, she changed the title to Frankenstein or A Modern Prometheus. I know most of you listening aced your college classes, but for the one or two that did not, Prometheus in Greek mythology was said to be the wisest of the titans. He stole fire from the gods on Mount Olympus and brought it to mankind, fire being a metaphor for knowledge and enlightenment. The 1818 novel was not inspired by the recent studies in human anatomy, but by the power of electricity. Remember, this novel was written shortly after the age of Ben Franklin hundred years or so before Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla. Electricity was thought to have life-giving properties. Life-giving properties indeed. However, that's not our theme today. From a different angle, Mary Shelley's novel is a timeless portrayal of unintended consequence and collateral damage. There is no way Victor Frankenstein could have imagined all the consequences of his creating of the creature. In the book, the creature was not given a name. That was the 1931 movie. Not surprisingly, there are three unintended consequences I want to explore in the creature's development that seem to run parallel to some of the unintended consequences and collateral damage in today's energy business. So I actually like the movie, the movie Prometheus. Obviously, it went a very different direction, and I would like to explore more about certain aspects of it, but I, I digress. Let's, however, stick with monsters. First off, the creature was an intelligent, albeit a bit grotesque-looking being. In fact, he taught himself to speak and read while living close to a rural family in Germany. The creature would gather firewood for the family and perform other services like clearing snow. Not understanding the creature... The impetuous son attacked him one day, and the creature grew weary of everyone's motives. COVID and the political response to the devastation are impossible to unbundle. However, some of the unintended consequences are starting to surface, and some have yet to bubble up. A few in Canada worth noting are around technology. Intentional consequence? Oil companies lowering greenhouse gas emissions. Unintended consequence? The Shell Scottfield facility is building a huge and state-of-the-art carbon capture plant. Here's the interesting part. 
the companies most reviled in this recent green movement are become the leaders of the movement with technology that far outperform any other actions in an attempt to get the world to the Paris Climate Agreement levels. Another unintended consequence, Canadian companies are the experts in in-situ oil sands production. Here's the science geeky part. By using a magnetron, the device that makes a microwave heat your macaroni and cheese, scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions for oil production are cut to near zero. Equally as important, water usage is cut by 90%. For the Canadian universities backing away from oil companies, be thoughtful there. Those research millions are going somewhere. So another intentional consequence, higher ESG standards for Canadian oil production. Unintended consequence, Canadian-based companies are producing oil in parts of the world where ESG is virtually ignored. Canadian oil companies are bringing the elite level Canadian ESG standards to these parts of the world. What a gratuitous thing to happen. How else would these standards be adopted in these parts of the world? So what about the U.S.? After the attack, the creature was still weary of people, but set out on a quest to find truth. Truth turned into polarization, as on his travels, he rescued a young girl who fell into a river. But again, not understanding the true nature of the events, the girl's father believed the creature was hurting the girl and shot the creature in the shoulder. This event polarized the creature from one of acceptance and admiration of his fellow beings to being single-mindedly focused on revenge. Victor Frankenstein could have never conceived a massive shift in the creature's personality or that the creature would migrate from Germany to Geneva. Although that does a kind of explain the Silencio nightclub in Geneva. Anyway, no one could have anticipated the depth and breadth of the unintended consequences in the U.S. or the havoc they would bring. We're all aware of some of the non-energy supply chain issues, like the shortage of new and used cars, electric components, toilet paper, food. Arguably the most impactful to my weekend plans, COVID and the February freeze, created a shortage of chicken wings. A couple more I didn't see coming. Poverty reduction that has been in decline has substantially reversed. Extreme poverty rose for the first time since 1997. Recycling, all but dead. Whatever happened to this concept of using less? In the 90s and early 2000s, there was a movement to miniaturize everything, including how much power electronic components used. Apparently, that entire movement has been miniaturized. Unemployment is coming down, but job openings are remaining open for months, and the numbers are increasing. The oil space has a couple of issues here. One that has massive consequences is the lack of tanker drivers, literally driving gasoline and diesel from the racks to the service stations. Shipping costs in general, they're higher, but they're even more amplified as it relates to islands, meaning that the island's supply world is getting much smaller. 
Jones Act, as it relates to island deliveries, is finally coming under review. Hedge funds are a thing again. Who knew? They were buying aging complex and non-core assets at historically cheap prices. This was the theme until that got out around Jan or Feb in 2021. Now the multiples are getting bid to uneconomic valuations. The green power gen world is seeing huge cost escalations in hydro, wind, and solar components. For example, steel prices are up 35% and polysilicon prices up 160% this year. Oil companies are able and have turned to the debt market for well over $35 billion in new financing. Here's the quirky thing about that. Some of the bond covenants express these companies cannot use the money to expand drilling directly. They must use the money to shore up the balance sheet, which, among other things, means paying down expensive debt. couple implications. It means current production will not increase much. But more importantly, U.S. producers will have a better ability to compete globally in the future. Finally, the colossal bashing the oil companies have taken is forcing them to dial back one aspect of ESG they do better than anyone the social aspect of donating hundreds of millions to the arts. Ironically, Paris is feeling significant pain from this unintended consequence. As Billy Crystal would say, forget Paris. And as I would say, tell me about Mexico. (laughs) Forget Paris. That was a great movie. And now comes the horror in the horror story. When very large grotesque beings start killing innocents, People become frightened. The creature exacts revenge by framing Victor. Victor becomes single-minded and vows to pursue the creature to the top of the world. Neither knew this vendetta would bring about their own demise. In the months leading up to Mexico's June elections, 90 candidates were assassinated. Most certainly collateral damage of multiple sides digging in their political heels. One of the unintended consequences is that foreign investment is backing away from Mexico. More investment in Mexico at this time only perpetuates the corruption culture. President Obrador is making nationalistic moves to close ranks and root out this corruption. This seemingly twisted approach to open markets is showing some unintended positive consequences, albeit not yet in energy. Very recently, the Mexican pharmacology system figured out a means by which to import oncology medication and avoid the system of payoffs that was stifling getting cancer medication into the country. I won't get into the details of how they did this, as I suspect we'll see this play out in other industries. The Canadian national KC Southern merger may look like a positive thing for Mexico. A consequence of this merger is the combined company will improve some of the aging rail lines into and around Mexico. The looming unintended consequence, with greater efficiency in moving refined product into Mexico, the country becomes even more dependent upon Texas for its supply of motor fuels. Okay, Corey, what's going on in your world? 
Well, for those of you who are customers of Refinitiv, you're likely aware that I head up middle distillates analysis for the Western Hemisphere. And from that perspective, perhaps I should be focusing in on Chile. Aside from some spikes here and there, Chile imported more diesel each month from the U.S. and Brazil through the first part of the 2000s. This persisted until about the middle of 2016, when the phenomenon completely flipped on its head, putting Brazil as the larger taker, by a substantial degree, than Chile. It's not that Chile was taking less, it's just that its long-term average U.S. diesel imports stayed about the same while Brazil's skyrocketed. Well, recently we've seen that change with Chile, rather than Brazil, pulling more volume from the U.S. I'm not convinced this will persist, but it's an interesting change nonetheless. And for our topic today, well, there's not a South American nation, and to be fair, not any nation, that doesn't have a story that we could pour into this bucket. But hey, that's just an interesting point, at least to me, that I wanted to bring up. Today, I'm going to uh, take this from a higher view and generally look at energy transition in South America. Oh, sounds good. Where are we starting? So, Colombia. Behind the headlines about civil unrest, protests, pipeline bombings, it's often difficult to remember how advanced Colombia's oil sector is. Fracking expertise, though fracking has been banned and allowed off and on over the last few years, nanotechnology and oil production, etc. And it has to be advanced, as oil is just shy of half of Colombia's economy, and reserves have been flattish for a number of years. And recall that last year, Colombia joined the OECD. But locally, PowerGen is a near-oilless process. I mention that because I've been spending a considerable amount of my time lately looking at Latin America petroleum demand, especially in the Caribbean, and that includes a large petroleum-fired component for PowerGen. Anyway, 68% of Colombian power generation is renewables. And like other South American countries, that's largely hydropower. Well, I mean, 51 billion kilowatt hours are from renewables, and 50 of those are from hydropower. But you know what's growing? Oil and gas fire generation. And add to that new Colombian energy transition laws. Just this week, Colombia deemed green and blue hydrogen as eligible to receive favorable tariff and tax treatments like other renewable sources. Now, I don't want to get into green hydrogen or that the most likely use for hydrogen would be in power generation, not in hydrogen-powered vehicles. But if you've not been paying attention lately, blue hydrogen is the hydrogen that is derived from natural gas. It's done so via steam methane reforming, SMR, and given the talent in Colombia's energy sector, something entirely conceivable. But what is the unintended consequence collateral damage here? Well, I have to go back and double-check if the laws have changed, but for investors in renewable energy product projects, 50% annual deduction of taxable income for the first several years, I believe it's five, after investment has been made. Equipment excluded from value-added tax, and if that machinery is imported, which it likely would be, customs duties are exempt. I believe we are all aware of how renewables need financial incentives to compete with traditional energy sources. And though the previous makeup of the law did just that, it is now effectively putting one leg of oil and gas on the same level as renewables. Yes, there's the entire deal with needing a hydrogen-fired power plant, but existing gas turbines can be converted to running on hydrogen. So, though gas-fired power generation pales in comparison to hydropower or even coal, conceivably there could be a conversion 
and or expansion that allows the use of hydrogen to produce power. Columbia could build SMRs for less than $500 million and get incentivized to bring in materials and future tax breaks, or it could bring in via hydrogen cargoes. Yes, there are vessels being built for hydrogen now. The Suizo Frontier was put into service in 2019. E- either way, for the energy transitionist, the change in the law represents collateral damage to those technologies and energy sources that are, or at least viewed as, green, and which Columbia has an abundance of, like hydro, solar, and wind. Interesting. But you're seeing some movement in traditional renewables, right? Yes, that's absolutely right. So take, for instance, Argentina. We've been hearing a lot about inflation in the U.S. the last few months, as recent figures put headline inflation at over 5%. But in Argentina, over 46%. And yes, I said that right. Uh, But if you've been around for a while and tune in with the markets, then you know that high inflation is nothing new for the country. In order to combat this inflation, the government has been looking at just about every piece of the economy where they can make changes. One piece happens to be in renewables, since 2006 has required a 10% biodiesel blend. That requirement actually expired in May of this year, and there are now actions being taken to reform the biofuels mandates in Argentina. Now, the legacy law has been extended during the talks until the end of August, but the government is pushing for a reduced blend mandate. And President Fernandez has already reduced the blend from 10% to 5%, the level that the new framework is attempting to achieve. What? Aren't we supposed to be passing laws to increase the level of biofuels blended into our transportation fuels? Well, add to that this fact as well. The government's new regulatory framework framework allow the energy secretariat the ability to lower the blend to as little as three percent depending on market conditions and if passed this law would be in effect until 2031 international soybean prices have gone on a tear recently and purportedly the lowering of the blend mandate would help defend argentines against rising fuel prices aka inflation argentina is the world's third largest soybean exporter Yet between 5 to 7% of the soybean crop is devoted to biodiesel production. So what's the issue? Well, despite Argentina's agriculture, agricultural industry and presence on the world stage, not all of the soybean producers have access to the export markets. They rely on selling to biofuel production that if suddenly doesn't need the traditional volumes of feedstock, leads to some difficulties in how to move crop production. Uh, inflation, yeah. But it sounds political as well. And speaking of politics, I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. Oh, I do. I thought about doing a deeper dive into Brazil for this podcast with the issues around COVID, accusations against Bolsonaro, Lula perhaps running again for the presidency next year. But a lot of that material is already in the forefront of people's minds. Now, other South American countries, well... Let's talk about Peru. Peru is not exactly a country that comes up that often when talking about energy. Demand is so-so, and crude production is well below its northern former OPEC neighbor, Ecuador, that produces over 500,000 barrels per day. Peru at one time nearly reached 200,000 barrels per day in production, but that fell precipitously several years ago. 
Peru recently experienced what many other countries in the world have experienced, a presidential election pitting polar opposites against one another. And just this week, it's become more clear that the winner of that election will be, well, actually is, the socialist candidate, Pedro Castillo. Now, there's assertions of fraud, etc., but that even if proved to be true would still not push the conservative candidate over the top. Besides, you know, the EU, US, and others, you know, the places devoid of any kind of election controversy have stated that Peruvian presidential elections were fair. Okay, so what? Well, the so what is Mr. Castillo campaigned largely on using the country's resources, largely mined resources, but still oil, to improve its economy. And more importantly, to nationalize said resources. Now, he's backed off of nationalization, likely at the behest of his more moderate economic advisors, and also likely as he won't have majority in the Peruvian Congress. However, the energy sector is still largely on the potential new president's mind, but the general approach has been scattershot. One item that may get done, renegotiating national gas contracts. <laughs> Sounds benign enough, right? Well, we're here to talk about collateral damage. This renegotiation would pertain to Block 56, of which Peruvian gas is produced and piped to Peru LNG for export. I, I won't make any assertions about fairness here, but in the history of Block 56, there are lawsuits and multiple years of talks that agreements should be renegotiated. If Castillo actually wades into this controversial issue, the collateral damage looks like the following. Time and resources spent not reaching any type of improvement or a worsening of relations with indigenous populations, or a cooling effect on investors in Peru's energy sector and economy at a time when the country is attempting to recover from the economic damage caused by the global response to COVID-19. And in regards to that latter possibility, even if it doesn't define as nationalization, but smells like it nonetheless, outside investors will be remiss to not assign a higher risk rating to Peru. All right, that's all for me today. Jim, please close us out. Mary Shelley didn't set out to write a novel on collateral damage or unintended consequence. Actually, she was in a pub bet with her husband, Percy Shelley, and the poet Lord Byron as to who could write the best horror novel. In the end, Percy couldn't accept his wife's success and their marriage became collateral damage. Frankenstein, or a modern Prometheus, does in fact show us the string of unintended consequences and collateral damage that results when hubris and lack of forethought creep into decision-making. We heard quite a few in just our short time today. All right. Thanks, Jim. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in.